a random encounter at a broadcasting facility, a shared interest and love of all things Marvel, Excelsior, a misinterpreted program title, and behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick, podcaster and comic book enthusiast, and Eddie Wilson, upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome everyone to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Get closer to the microphone. Well, because I was going louder, Eddie. I don't want to, you know... You no, it didn't, have, it didn't come through that way. You go have, ahead. You know, the one moment where, you know, you go, whoa, that was hot the other day with the mic yeah, before we yeah, recorded. Yeah. Hot like wasabi. <laughs> Hotline bling, Eddie. You don't get the reference because it's Drake. But... <laughs> Thank goodness. The rapper. Anyway, before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special returning, guest, well, yes, he's a he is a two timer. Oh, but but in a good way. Yes, but before we get into the usual rigmarole of introducing our two timer, we w- <laughs> we want to tell you all at home because we had to say two timer twice. So there you go. Go before we do that. How can people get a hold of us on social media? I'm glad I asked that. Me. Yeah. Go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Go on Twitter and Instagram at The Marvelists. You can also find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms. Oh, well, by the way, Eddie's on Instagram at Eddie9193. And I'm on Peter Melnick at everything except TikTok. At TikTok. Well, but at better. Melnick, but better. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. But anyway, how can you find the show on streaming platforms? Go on Google and just type in The Marvelists. You'll find us on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, SoundCloud, whatever. Spotify. Yeah, well, I know I said Spotify. You did? I like Spotify. Yeah, well, me too. It's a really nice app. Yeah. You can listen to, you know, our show as well as... Uh, Good stuff. A Stark Contrast coming soon. Ooh, okay. Friend of the shows. Yeah, yeah. Daiko's new podcast. Daiko, yeah. way to go. Eddie rhymed. What do you know? Stop that. Oh, but oh, oh. <laughs> anyway, you can also support this show in a wide variety of ways by going to patreon.com slash... The Marvelists. And when you go on there for as little as $3 to as much as... Whatever. Um, well, let's say a million. Would you like to support for a million a month? Millie. Millie, come on. We're looking for you. Vanilli? Come on. Oh, wow. Well, when you said that, you know, it was actually your voice coming out of my mouth. Don't forget my That's number. That's but a topical reference, right? Yeah. But anyway, like I said, $3 a month to whatever a month. But for $3 a month, you get early access to episodes and our undying love and gratitude. For $5 a month, you're able to check out our show, the Fantastic Voyage, where myself, Eddie, and a rotating panel of special guests talk about Fantastic Four, issue by issue, from one all the way to, I think it's 102, the Stan Lee and Jack Kirby era. Not just that, we cover annuals, we cover crossovers. For our one-year anniversary episode, we are also going to be releasing a special bonus episode talking about Amazing Spider-Man number one, because that colorful quartet shows up. And by colorful, it's just blue and white and black, you know? And some orange. Oh, oh yeah, that's good. That's good. So there's another color added in, but not it's, many. It's good. But, Eddie, Peter. joining us on the... Oh, and by the way, Patreon or go to uh, patreon.com slash themarvelists, like I said, support, as well as belowthecollar.com slash themarvelists. And buy our t-shirt. Buy our t-shirt. Buy our t-shirt. Did I say buy our t-shirt? Purchase. Buy our t-shirt. Well, that too. Consume. Well, don't eat the shirt. That's stupid. That's a different way. 
No, well, buy eat buy to eat the shirt and then buy another one to wear it. Absorb? Yeah, good. No, buy seven, one for every day of the week. Okay. And technically, you know what you should do? You should buy 14 because then you have an undershirt underneath it. Because then you might get cold during the winter months. We don't know. But anyway. <laughs> the return. Oh, now you want me to talk. Yes, I do. <laughs> we heard from him. We met him. We got autographs from the author of The Amazing Story of Stanley, A Marvelous Life. We even it, had handshakes back then, too. Absolutely. Danny Fingeroth is back. Danny, welcome back. Thank you. Could you, could you guys repeat how to find you on, on the Internet? I was writing down, but my pencil broke, and I need to <laughs> write all that stuff. So if you could repeat all that, I'd appreciate it. A Man. true believer. Wait a minute, I think he's was. being sarcastic. Do I detect a note of sarcasm? Are you kidding me? This baby is off the charts. Why? <laughs> oh, a sarcasm detector. Well, that's a really useful invention. It's okay. <laughs> well, I'm just happy he's still awake. Because that put what? me to sleep. How Did dare you say you, something? Sir? Well, okay, anyway, yes, I am. But thank you. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be back. Um, and and uh, yes, it would be nice to actually see you guys in person and give you a hard time face to face. But. We'll, we'll have to settle for, for this, I suppose. When it happens, we'll be worth the wait. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Danny, first off, as of this recording on April 15th, I want to say congratulations. You had a book come out at the House of Ideas, Marvel, this week. I did. It was, uh, well, it was me and Mike Manley um, did the lead story in the Dark Hawk 30th anniversary uh, celebration issue with the overall title, Heart of the Hawk, not to be confused with Heart of the Hawk, which was a Dark Hawk six-part arc in the 90s. But um, So it's got a uh, story by me and Mike Manley and uh, uh, the um, color by Chris Sotomayor. And it's got two other Dark Hawk stories by um, Dan Abnett and um, other people whose names and Kyle Higgins. Kyle Higgins and a bunch of other people. So it's... Darkhawk, um, sort of in his 90s mode by me and Mike, an untold tale, but it's a brand new. I mean, we, this is all uh, invented, uh, written, drawn, colored, inked, uh, you know, within the past uh, six months or so. Um, and then there's a story, I think, of Darkhawk in another part of his career, and then something that gives a glimpse into a possible future. But, uh, yeah, it came out yesterday, and... Um, most of the buzz that I can see has been pretty positive, so I'm pleased about that. And it's one of those things of, you know, who says you can't go home other than Bon Jovi on that album? But Darkhawk was a character that you're heavily associated with, and what is it like being able to return to that character? It was uh, totally surreal, and yet totally got into a groove with it. You know, I wrote um, the series, the character was created by uh, Tom DeFalco and Mike Manley. Um, but it was developed uh, by me and uh, editors Greg Wright and Nell Yumtov and uh, Howard Mackey and, and, um, and, and Mike Manley, of course. You know, and, and it, uh, so I've been the writer, or I was the writer for all 50 issues and uh, all three of the annuals, and Mike and I did the first 25 issues and the first annual or two together. So, um, so in some ways, it was weird to be going back to something that I did 25 years ago. Uh, but, I, you know, it's a character I get asked about a lot, uh, that I uh, sign a lot of uh, the, uh, the issues at 
at different conventions um, and and public you know and, and public appearances. So, but it was strange um, to sort of have to find you know a window in the continuity. Um, you know, to write a story of Dark Hawk in his early days that wouldn't contradict anything that went before, but that also would simultaneously introduce the character to new readers, but also give something new to people who had read the whole series, or, or, or certainly the, uh, the the Finger Roth and Manly issues. So it was a challenge, but it was you know, Darkhawk was um, uh, supposed to be kind of Spider-Man for the 90s. So I sort of partly put on my, my Spider-Man uh, thinking cap as well. And, and, and um, you know, Spider-Man back when he was a, a teenager in the, in the Ditko and, uh, and Romita senior years. So, uh, so uh, you know, it was frighteningly... Despite my advanced age, it's frighteningly easy for me to start thinking like an adolescent, you know. So, um, so that's what I did. Well, that's what they do, I think, in general. Uh, they take you back. And I was just thinking my experience and first exposure to this character was, I believe, the 75th anniversary of The Defenders, where he is yelling in that word bubble with the logo of the Defenders saying, and don't come back, this is the end of the Defenders. 75th anniversary? 75th issue, I think. Yeah, you said anniversary. I'm like, anniversary, not, no. I haven't been around that long. I'm an old yeah. guy, too. Okay, so I'm flipping words here. Um, but what I was getting at when you're saying, Danny, about having to uh, be careful with what you do with this character now that he was established and all, is it maybe a little bit easier, though, than having to concoct, come up with a character all, brand new altogether? Well, uh, they, they, those things use different, uh, different creative muscles you know it's um you know having to come up with somebody new is the challenge of having to come up with somebody new but it also means that you don't have to go back and and reread you know a zillion uh previous appearances you know so this um so yeah, but this this was this was a sort of what I did in this is I tried to give a new twist to some of the older characters and uh, and, and and deepen some of the relationships so i mean it is um you know, when you're reading something, whether it's a book or anytime you're experiencing media or any or any kind of story, even if if it's a movie that came out 75 years ago, it's in your head. It's in your it's current in your brain. You know, so so I mean, comics are like that, right? They live uh, whatever comic you're reading. It doesn't matter if it came out 50 years ago or 10 years ago. It it, it it's it's current. It's in it, it it's in your mind. So I sort of. I needed to have that. I need to simultaneously have that familiarity, and yet remember that not, you know, that only me and Mike and you know maybe some of the, you know, super duper hardcore Dark Horse fans have that information and and passion, and um, we had to kind of uh, make it make it interesting enough and cool enough for people to who weren't, you know. Uh, such deep fans of Dark Horse. I know it's hard to believe uh, to come along for the ride. So it seems, it, like, it seems like we did that. Um, you know, the car. Uh, you know, I, I, I did at one point um, a miniseries called um, Spider-Man: Friends and Enemies in the in the uh, in the mid '90s, and the premise was that I brought together Spider-Man and then Spider-Man for the 
uh, so Spider-Man was Spider-Man for the 60s, Nova Spider-Man for the 70s, Speedball Spider-Man for the 80s, and Dark Horse Spider-Man for the 90s. Mm. And I teamed them, them all up in this uh, four-issue miniseries. You know, and they were all, you know, they've all been developed differently over the, over the years. And, uh, you know, but what they have in common is that they're all stories about a young person um, trying to lead a reasonably normal life, um, who suddenly has great power and responsibility uh, thrust upon them. So that, so if that's, you know, if that is sort of the ultimate Marvel comic character, uh, you know, again, it's a challenge. How are you faithful to that tradition of storytelling and that tradition of superheroes, and yet? you know, still bring something new to the table. You know, Tom DeFalco, you'll find me quoting a lot, because Tom, Tom is very smart. But uh, Tom says that uh, one of his philosophies of writing comics is that even if you're writing the 10 millionth Spider-Man story, there should be one thing in every story that has something you've never seen before, you know? Hmm. You know, it's sort of it's a challenge you give yourself as a writer and... Um, you know, and it doesn't have to be a big thing. It doesn't have to be Aunt May dying or Peter revealing a secret identity, but some little thing that that a, that a reader, even if they don't register it consciously, they register it in the back of their mind. Oh, you know, there's something. There's still something that can surprise me, you know, with this character, but be consistent with who they are. So that's, you know, that that's sort of one of the challenges. Uh, that came up with this story, you know. Um, like blueberries gives him a rash or something. Um, maybe, you know. <laughs> or, or say in Spider-Man, you know, more like, well, here's, here's a way he used his webbing that maybe you've never seen, or here's a way he used his spider sense that, 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 um, you know, to do something or to save himself from danger in a way that he hadn't quite done uh, ever before. And look, there's been 10,000 Spider-Man stories, so I'm sure anything anybody does, you know, somebody else, uh, if they studied it enough, you go, no, he did that 40 years ago. <laughs> yeah, no, I completely get that. In fact, when you when you say about the different ways to use the webbing and so on, that's that's an oh cool moment when you find out that he can do this with it right, now. And right. so so you will, I think, latch on to that. And when you when you read that and find out that usage in that sense, uh, before right. I forget, I wanted to go back. You said that you felt surreal about this character coming back. Now it was because you, you know you realized, oh wow, he's thirty years old, Dark Hawk, or was it a sense of maybe, well, why this character to to bring back? Because more mostly, I, I think, to maybe most fans that are primarily maybe movie fans. They're not sure who Dark Hawk is. Well, maybe they seen, oh, he's kind of like dark blue. He's got wings. He flies. <laughs> what else does he do? Uh, look, that uh, that has to do more with Marvel's, you know, uh, the 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 deep uh, workings of their editorial and promotional departments. But you know, somebody in there must have realized it was the anniversary and that it, and thought it'd be cool to do it and. Somebody else, uh, or probably a team of people, sat down with uh, with their computers and, and did the uh, input numbers and thought, "Oh, we could make some money doing this." That's it. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So I think it's that 
it, there's got to be a passion for the character, and then the ability to prove that it that it uh, that, that it might actually sell. It, you know, as we were saying, I think uh, in the you know in the top secret conversation before you push record, unless you push record and weren't telling me, um, you know, there um, there was a lot of. Um, Sales and passion and interest in Darkhawk. Darkhawk is one of those things uh, that, while it seemed to come out in the uh, glut of the early '90s, actually came out just before the starting gun of that. When, when Marvel was still involved in kind of uh, a slow, controlled method of growth, the theory was we'd put out a new title every month and figure maybe half of them would succeed so at the end of the year you know you'd have uh, you'd have grown the line by by six titles now of course when the when the big uh, fan you know uh, you know collectors frenzy of the uh, of the early 90s happened uh, that that went out the window and suddenly we just uh, you know we were ordered to put out as much as we could as fast as we could but dark Hawk came in just uh, within a year before that really got going so so I think that the high sales and high interest of the comic was actually people reading the comic as opposed to people, you know, buying it and putting it in a, in a Mylar bag. Yeah. So, so I think because of that, and, you know, I guess because of something that me and Mike and, uh, were doing that, that really um, connected with a lot of people. You know, so, so uh, you know, why other characters of that era you know, didn't come back. Uh, I couldn't tell you. You know, but uh, some some combination of passion and and profitability potential. You know? well, just as a quick um, a quick side note on that too, and and you can give us your input. I don't know if others, it's it's a universally known answer to the question. But you know, with sales cranking them out as fast as you can, I know Spider Man, and I think Incredible Hulk, and maybe Fantastic Four. I don't know what other titles were coming out every two weeks, um, and how long did that last? And with with other titles, if you know. Well, that, that was a summer thing. Oh, you know? just, uh-huh. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, look, if you, um, you know, Spider-Man had four monthly titles, so you could say that it came out every week, but if mm. you were just, but Amazing Spider-Man itself for, I don't know, five, six, seven years in a row uh, was, came out, uh, you know, every two weeks uh, during the summer months, the theory being the kids had, you know, uh, yes, I said kids, Kids had you know, time and and maybe were working summer jobs and and weren't at school, so you know if they were Spider Man or or I guess Hulk or whoever else was was doing that fans, they'd have the money to invest uh, in buying the comics and they'd have the time to read them. So um, uh, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's why we did that. Yeah, no, it does, and I assume that you know, of course, Marvel did well. By doing that, and now that you're saying that, I'm remembering at the bottom of the opening page saying published monthly except for June, July, August, twice, whatever. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know whose idea that was, but it was. It was mine. Yeah, there you go. But uh, yeah, obviously it worked. You know, the yeah, the problem is um, that even then, uh, most creators, you know, certainly most artists, couldn't uh, keep up that kind of pace. You know, Mark Bagley was one of the exceptions. He was very fast and very good, and still is. You know, um, yeah. So I guess you'd have, 
you know, you'd have the, uh, the the biweekly summer issues, and then maybe they'd be followed by an issue or two drawn by somebody else. Or, you know, those are in the days when uh, it was more common for a series to have a regular artist month after month after month after month, as opposed to you know different artists doing uh, story arcs. Uh, so, um, so, so sometimes it, it would it would it would show, you know. That, um, but the idea was, if you, especially if you keep the same writer on it, then um, you know I'm, I'm going to quote Tom again. You know, I think uh, at some point somebody asked him, uh, "Isn't four monthly Spider-Man titles too many?" And Tom's response was, "Not for someone who loves Spider-Man." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so uh, you know, I mean, TV shows. Uh, well, back in the day, I don't. You know, it's all over the map now. But TV shows came out once a week. People didn't seem to have a problem with that. Right. And you also have, you know, the apparently, aspect of spinoffs. Apparently, still works with the uh, with the uh, Winter Soldier and uh, and uh, and Falcon. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, with the character of Dark Hawk, Dark Hawk is a you know a quote unquote lesser known kind of character, but a character like that. It's interesting to see the lesser knowns have such a rabid fan base because you my biggest one is you look at Moon Knight. Moon Knight years and years ago was a D to C lister. Not many people really knew or cared about the character. And over the past, you know, three years alone, the character has been steadily increasing in terms of popularity. Now we're going to be getting a Disney Plus series. But we're seeing all these kind of characters like the lesser knowns and they attract a rabid fan base. And what is it like seeing that with a character like Dark Hawk with, again, 30 years later? And there is that rabid fan base for the character. Uh, it's, look, I mean, it's, it's very gratifying, obviously. But, I, you know, I've seen it, you know, I've been around the business so long. Plus, you know, I've seen it happen. It just, things catch on. I mean, look, yeah. I, guess the, I guess the, I mean, and certainly, look, uh, we live in a world where Groot is a big star, where Star-Lord is a big star. I mean, this is... Not anything anybody would have expected, you know, ten years ago, not much less forty years years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, it, it's you know, I think the most interesting kind of example is if you wait long enough, uh, you'll see. If you live long enough, you'll see everything. <laughs> Iron Man, well, you know, terrific character. Um, I don't think he was ever Marvel's biggest seller. Um, Always did well was in the Avengers, you know. Um, uh, had a had a cool origin. Uh, there, you know, all these different sets of armor, but was always a solid middle seller. And then suddenly, you know, we come to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and a you've got the fact of Robert Downey Jr. being born to play that role, but then you also have the era of the personal computer and the cell phone and 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 all this technology and 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 and, and then all the japanese uh robots and manga and suddenly here you know so, suddenly iron man is this robot human robot mechanical uh, alcoholic uh fallible. he's like got all these elements come together to make iron man Marvel's, you know, among its biggest, most popular characters, and, you know, because somebody figured out, oh, this character is a template, excuse me, for all the elements of all the stuff that young people find cool now. You know, so, I mean, I think Moon Knight, 
uh, well, we'll see if Moon Knight ends up being popular. But Moon Knight always had a great visual. That was, I mean, yeah. I, was, I was the editor of Moon Knight. And, I mean, I can tell you the problem with Moon Knight is they had a great visual, but there wasn't, no matter who the writer was, uh, there wasn't, you know, not anybody's fault. There just wasn't a lot of there there. You know, he was, he just always seemed to be some kind of vaguely Batman-like character, and then they had the multiple identities, and you know, I mean, I, I've been there and done that. You try what you can with the character, and and yet somehow, as you say, maybe now there's something about him or his look or that that has grabbed um, some segment of attention. And of course, you know, when you say he's popular, I mean, it's a it's it, it, it's it's hard to even know what that means in pure comic book terms. Yeah, right? you know, because I mean. You know, I'm I'm from an era, and maybe uh, you are too. Um, when, if a comic sold under a hundred thousand, that Marvel Comics was canceled. There was no why would you even bother with it? You know, it's just you could take the same personnel and put them on something else that might sell hundred fifty or two hundred or three hundred thousand. Now, obviously, that it's a different ballgame. So, so say if Moon Knight goes from selling five thousand copies to fifteen thousand copies. I guess that's a you know a 200% increase but it's not quite the same you know but it's a different it's a different market I mean and 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 I guess the thing that would be more important to the company anyway would be how the character does on that on that show and it's very interesting in the sense, by the way, that you just first off you described uh, Iron Man you know with the connection with robots I never thought of that you know. And now I'm just imagining, though, an alcoholic inside of a robot, and that's the perfect way to describe Iron Man. <laughs> I would watch that show. Oh, <laughs> but uh, in regards to, you know, just I love the idea of seeing, like you had mentioned earlier, Groot and Star-Lord. I never thought in my wildest dreams those characters would be household names. And it's right. it's a testament of how, you know, the movies are, as well as the comics nowadays, you know, when... The last, I want to say, 30, 35 years, finding ways to take lesser-known characters and elevate them to a new status. And it's, yeah, it's a good thing. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, the characters, nobody invents a new character because they think it'll be bad. I mean, everybody has high hopes, and they, you know, they put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into it, and some things catch on, and some don't, but they... Right, I mean, you're starting out to make a new superhero-type character. Well, you want them to have a cool costume and uh, cool powers and an interesting backstory. Um, and, you know, either it clicks or it doesn't. But, but, but sort of we try to front-load them as much as we can with these interesting elements. So um, I, guess, I guess just that nobody... I guess Kevin Feige and and his team and and, and whoever else um, just decided to experiment with that potential and and, and see of what this uh, I mean a talking tree right I mean there's you know they somehow found people who could make a talking tree work both conceptually and then in the script and then in the actors and the makeup and the and the CGI and stuff. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's, uh, but it's, but it's kind of wild. I guess that, I guess there's never, 
been, uh, on, on, you know, sort of by definition, Marvel and DC somehow have these fictional universes that started um, 80 plus years ago. And I don't know if there's anything outside of the Bible and Shakespeare and, and you know, and, and, and other, you know, and mythologies of various pantheons, but there's been, no, there's been nothing commercial like that that's had that kind of sustained, ongoing visibility and the potential for popularity. You know, you have characters like the Shadow and the Lone Ranger, and, and they're always somewhere in the culture, but they're, you know, uh, I may be wrong, but I don't think there's anybody putting out monthly Shadow Adventures, a monthly Lone Ranger Adventure. No. Yeah, they... so, you know, or... or, or, or you know, maybe James Bond or something. So, but but there's nothing like these Marvel and DC universes that have this 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 endless monthly research and development and 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 audience uh, you know uh, you know audience uh, testing that goes on. So it's you know there's not there's nothing like it. Nothing, nothing, you know, I don't I don't think. But mentioning Groot, you know, the idea that Groot is a household name, he's such an obscure character that, you know, people, shout out to, again, Daiko, where she has a cat named Groot, as well as Rocket Raccoon, and let me tell you, that is the most adorable Siamese cat, but one of the things about that is how massive the Marvel Universe is, to the point where Stan Lee himself, he forgot, he's like, why am I going to be doing a cameo in Guardians of the Galaxy? I didn't make any of the characters. Stan, you made Groot. And he's like, oh, okay, Excelsior. <laughs> and, you know, speaking of Stan, by the way, A Marvelous Life is now in paperback, and a few, a few months back it went into audiobook format. Congratulations. It, it's true. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the full title is A Marvelous Life, The Amazing Story of Stan Lee. It was, uh, and it is, um, contrary to what some people uh, may have read in various uh, public relations uh, releases, um, it was the first uh, major biography of Stan to come out after his death. Um, and, uh, well, thank you. It, it, uh, people seem to like it, and although there are some uh, folks who um, are, not, uh, are not Stan fans, but not even, that, that's not even the right word, who, who seem to have an agenda against Stan, who... Um, think that the uh, book is overly easy on him. Um, most people think it's a pretty fair uh, warts and all view. Um, so uh, I'm proud of that, you know, although having been or being in the comic business and having known Stan as a colleague for many years, um, I think I get into a lot of stuff that's sort of how the sausage is made or under the hood or whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, that you know, so it, I think I think it's an insider's view of comics, but well aware that the audience I'm looking for, that I was looking for is a more general audience. So it doesn't get so deep in the weeds of comics arcana, but it gets deep enough in that comics uh, people who know their comics history, uh, I think, um, still find out stuff they didn't know about Stan. But most. Like I said, because I was very wary, I didn't want to write a hagiography, but you know, I, I wanted to write something that put the facts out uh, as much as you can ever know facts, and if, uh, you know about this kind of thing, uh, 
and give everybody's point of view, including Kirby's and Ditko's and uh, and, uh, and and everyone else. Um, so yeah, the book has been well received, and the paperback came out and, and has has done well. Um, you know, my favorite blurb is I got an incredible blurb from Jules Pfeiffer, who loved the book, which kind of blew me away. Um, and and I did my own audio book. So if you're enjoying listening to this, just imagine 14 hours of it. <laughs> uh, no, but, but seriously, folks, I've actually people, you know, one thing, you know, that the, you know, I'm I am a born and raised Manhattanite. So as you can tell by my highly sophisticated uh, uh, demeanor. And uh, I always thought that I didn't really have a New York accent, that I sort of had just sort of a kind of northeastern, you know, uh, somewhat educated accent. But that, I've been disabused of that notion by the many people who say, and it's great to have somebody with a New York accent like that reading the book. <laughs> you know? so, so, my, so my view of myself as a suave, sophisticated uh, uh, Manhattanite have been blown out of the water by well, that, but uh, <laughs> are they not putting anywhere on the publishing or packaging? You know, narrated by the author. Say again. Are they not putting anywhere on the packaging of the audiobook narrated by the author? Oh, I think they are. I okay. Think they are. Although, although, don't forget, uh, most people, uh, as far as I can tell, are getting the audiobook as an as a download from Audible. Yep. This guy over like here. That. So there's no so there's no packaging you know, for them to see. In the texting, I I don't know. I think it's in. I think it you is can, in you, there. You can you can buy the discs, you know. Yeah. I, and, I, and I think it, you know, I think originally there was another version, but then uh, I persuaded them to use my version. So. And the thing, pretty, the thing, pretty sure it does say by the author. But the thing is, with your voice, you have a unique voice where it sets it apart from everyone else. But it's all like it's a clear, succinct voice. Easy for me to say succinct, but the you know it helps with it too. It's it's nice. You got a good voice. Well, thank you. My 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 mother, the speech therapist, and my father, the cantor, would both be uh, glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> How much time, Danny, did that take to I put was together? Ask that. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, it's a little vague in my mind. I mean, I know I had to go downtown in the days when you when we still were traveling uh, in subways and going to. You know, Macmillan, who is the uh, overall, you know, it's put out by um, St. Martin's Press, which is a division of Macmillan, and Macmillan has their own audio division uh, all the way down in the Wall Street area. So, oh boy, I'd say two or three weeks, three full days a week for those. So I'd say if it's four, if the finished thing is 14 hours, I probably was reading for 35, 40 hours. You know, I mean, that's that's part of the, you know, doing that professionally is is that I was working with a terrific uh, director who I could see was making notes all the time and then would, would occasionally ask me to reread something. So he, you know, so I, they wouldn't stop the recording. I would just redo it. So he'd have to make notes and 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 go back and edit stuff out. So I mean, it's it, it's as much. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, say if I were, you know, say if I were um, in a bookstore or at a convention doing a reading. Well, you know, if you if you make a few flubs or or if you if you mispronounce something or you cough, it's no big deal. You know, people, you're you're a human standing in front of other humans. But when you're doing it with this, you know, super sensitive recording equipment, and it's and it's and it's you know, for the permanent record, uh, they want to get it uh, 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 as clean sounding as possible. So that, 
Yeah, I'd say I was in the record in the recording studio. That's one part of it, and that's you know that's part of the you know because you're in this highly sensitive sound booth, and every little vibration and bump Whisper. is picked up. Mm-hmm. The the ventilation in those rooms is terrible. <laughs> you know, there's. You know, they can't. You can't just have the air conditioner on. The way air conditioning, even central air, goes on and off and makes noise you're not even aware of. So I'd say I was ready to pass out pretty much at the end of every <laughs> of every. Uh, I think too, you wouldn't want to even be speaking to anybody after you get done a day's work doing how, that. Yeah. How much water did you have? Uh, a lot of water and and uh, yeah, and so, somehow I, I remember having like uh, lozenges. Absolutely, that, like, what I was thinking of lozenges. Yeah. Yeah, but it couldn't, you know, the lozenges must have been for in between, because if you have a lozenge in your mouth that's banging against your teeth, it's going to sound like uh, an earthquake. Yeah, Eddie. So I don't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's definitely water and, and coffee also, because when, when you are passing out and, <laughs> mm. you know, in, in that stuffy booth, um, yeah. you know, caffeine uh, definitely helps. But it was, you know, and the other thing you learn when you're doing something like that is you learn how many words, that you certainly read every day and write every day and maybe even say out loud occasionally, you find out how many of the word, how many of those words you don't really know how to pronounce correctly, you know, till mm. till you till you're in a room with somebody going, no, that's not how you pronounce it. <laughs> did you accidentally stay say Stanley instead of yes, Stan? Yes, exactly what I did. No, but there's some. I mean, the phrase that I that I, I actually still don't know how to pronounce is. Uh, it's it's Latin, I guess, but it's used commonly. It's the word first word is S U I, and the second word is G E N E R I S. So I always say sweet gen- sweet generous, sweet generous, sweet. I have no idea how to pronounce. Sweet that. Christmas. Yes, exactly. You know, but I and also when you read your own book, you find, despite having like yourself and your editors and twelve other people proofread your book, when you're reading from a printed version, you go. Oh man, how did that get in there? I was, I was like, there's some, some grammatical or word or the wrong. Word. I mean, just some. There's always, you know, you find three or four different typos that you go, you know, uh, you know, for for aspiring writers out there, by the way, always read your first page and your first chapter very carefully after you finish your book and before it goes to the printer, because that's the one you've read so many times you 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 can't even see if there's anything wrong with it. So. Mm. Always be careful with your first chapters and your first pages. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the, uh, you know, were you part, like, were you able to do, like, maybe on-the-fly editing, audio editing, like, as you're saying, like, I'm going to change this word from the uh, print version and make it the proper one, or did, did you leave it warts and all, quote-unquote? There might have been, I think there were two or three places where it was, it, it was so painful to me <laughs> to read it out loud that I that I did change it. Not, you know, nothing substantial, but just things where... You know, where like a third grader could have seen the grammatical mistake, or the, or the, you know, or, or, or the, or the, or the, or the usage mistake. So, a couple of places like that, and you know, and there was some actually. The paperback um, actually has. I mean, again, between the paperback and the hardcover, there's not um, a whole lot of difference, but there's three or four places in the paperback where I was able to correct uh, some things. Um, again, nothing super major, but you know. So there's so for you completists, <laughs> you know, there's a little there's a little bit of difference in the paperback. 
And I mean, Danny, I got to tell you, when I was, you know, listening to the audiobook and I had read the uh, print version prior, I'm so glad you fixed it from, you know, Stan and Jack created the Fantastic Four from the original version of the Fantastic 12 in the print version. So, you know, good change. Uh, like I said, you read something so many times and it just gets by. You know, I mean, I, I, what I did one time in, in the hardcover is I referred to maybe, I think, Captain America as being by Lee and Kirby, just not, you know, which is an embarrassing mistake to make because for the obvious reasons. But, you know, it, 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 it was... You know, you write Lee and Kirby so many times. Yeah. When you want to write Simon and Kirby, somehow just like your your autopilot makes it Lee. And mm-hmm. then when you read it for the 12th time, well, Lee is spelled correctly. You know, <laughs> so, right? Yes. So it's not, you, know, you don't catch the mistake that way. You have to really be concentrating. So, you know, look, every author has horror stories like that. What else you're up to? Uh, you said to us before we started recording about a upcoming uh, class that you're doing, editing comics. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of stuff with a uh, website called Comicsplex. That's C-O-M-I-X-P-L-E-X dot com, and um, I did um, I did a Stan Lee birthday tribute there on Stan Lee's birthday last year. What would have been his birthday, and uh, I did a um, very well received. Uh, uh, Al Jaffe, 100th birthday tribute there last month on March 13th when it was uh, Al's birthday. Um, and Al is still with us, and we had a, uh, a message from him. So, uh, um, hmm. um, and um, starting on Saturday the 24th um, for two consecutive weekends of um, all together 10 hours, I'll be doing a Live, interactive, very low, you know, very low registration intentionally. Um, um, comics editing workshop, uh, comics and graphic novel editing workshop on Comicsplex, uh, where I will uh, download to you in real time, and um, if you take the course, um, everything you need to know about being a comic book editor. Uh, that I have learned uh, myself in my many, many, many years of doing this and and editing uh, some very high-selling and uh, high-visibility titles. You know, I was the editor of the the group editor of the Spider-Man line for years and uh, have done books about various aspects of comics, but I've been doing this for decades. And so I've got this really... um, specialized set of knowledge about what goes into making comics and and especially about what goes you know you can there's a lot of stuff that is that that you don't even think of especially having to do with the relationships between editors and writers and artists and editors and companies and editors and readers and editors and and you know there's just a lot of stuff that I kind of learn the hard way um, that um, you know and, and uh, anyway so that's so that that's what this workshop will be the four two and a half hour sessions where uh, plus some take-home assignments um, plus um, I'll be willing to do um, some amount of uh, checking in with people uh, for a couple of weeks after the course it's a little pricey and you can find it on comicsplex.com. Uh, C-O-M-I-X-P-L-E-X dot com. Um, 
but I think it's I think it's unique. You know, I once I taught an editing course once uh, live in New York, and sort of I was amazed. You know, when I got to bullet point like number three hundred twenty-three on my on my syllabus, and I went, "Wow, there's a lot of stuff about editing that people don't know." You know, mm-hmm. so you know, it, and I think it would be good for writers, artists, you know, people interested in creativity, whether they. You know, again, whether their interest is to do it professionally, whether their interest is to just edit their own stuff, and it's not a you know, it's not a writing course, but certainly my background as a writer and the fact that you work a lot with writers, I'm sure a lot of stuff about story and uh, the writing life will come in besides editing. But it's it's uh, you know, it's it's uh, I I predict it will be intense, and I predict that uh, you will learn a lot about. Life, art, and comics. And the enrollment a, is limited to how many do we know? How many to sign up? Um, you know, I want to say uh, limited to ten. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think if we, you know, it's going to be on. I don't think it'll be Zoom. It'll be, I think, on Streamyard, which is similar to Zoom, but it will real. It will be like being in the room with me without the you know annoying part of being in the room with me. You know, <laughs> so it. But but you know it will be if. You know, I think at this point most people are familiar with with Zoom or or or, or similar things. Um, you know, that's like the one of the unreal side effects of this whole uh, crazy pandemic years, and that people. I know I personally have had experiences where, you know, I I, I go to a lot of events and take a lot of classes uh, for a number of reasons. A, just to break up the boredom, but B, to network and, and to learn stuff. And and I have found that, in you know, despite the fact that it sometimes you look like a crazy person yelling at your computer screen, you know, I, I have found there's a certain kind of intimacy with Zoom uh, things that um, it's not quite the same thing in the same room, but in, in a way it's like the thing that's nice about online education or online um, you know panels or seminars is that suddenly you know when I you know I've taught a lot over the years uh, various topics and given literally hundreds of panels and, and presentations at conventions but you're limited geographically right if I'm teaching a course in New York then by definition only people who live within you know whatever 50-mile radius to New York are going to find it convenient to come in. Uh, teaching online, you can be anywhere in the world and, and, and join in. So it, 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 uh, it gives the people putting on the event a greater potential. It also gives the people who might be interested a chance to participate and learn uh, something that, that they wouldn't have before. So it's, I mean, we've you know, obviously we've had online education for the past 20 years, but but it's been so um, accelerated now in, in, in the COVID era. So, um, you know, if anybody wants to ask me any questions about it, they can certainly email me, danny at dannyfingeroth.com, and uh, I can answer your questions. But I think it'll be an intense and, and worthwhile course Um you know, with with the focus and with the subject being editing comics and graphic novels, and not, you know, I'm going to try to make it for people as much as for somebody who might have ambitions to edit at a Marvel or DC. Also for someone who 
might want to self-publish or, or do something with a small group of friends or have a very personal statement. So it's, you know, there's a lot of things about editing um, that uh, don't necessarily only apply to superheroes or, 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 or corporate-owned stuff. So don't, uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to make it universal. But, of course, well, obviously I know that given my background and sort of what's you know, glamorous, uh, I'll obviously have to talk about Marvel, DC, superheroes, etc. And the thing is, in regards to you know the chorus, it's you know for people who maybe aspire to want to be an editor, it's good as an aspiring creator though to be able to be multifaceted in so many different ways. You know, myself, I'm trying to get into comics as a writer, but on the flip side, I'm doing other things, doing you know dabbling a little bit in coloring and inking because you want to be able to you know. Be as multifaceted as possible. Be the uh, Swiss Army knife of it all, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately, editing is, uh, you know, there's a quote I've been using. Um, it's from a, a, a classic Futurama episode. It's, um, you know, um, where Bender essentially um, becomes the the god to um, to this, uh, this, like, microscopic civilization that starts growing uh, on on his uh, on his on his armor as he flo- collides uh, through space, and uh, he gets a message from someone who may or may not uh, be God. And uh, the uh, this deity says to him, "When you do things right, people won't be sure you've done anything at all," which I think is a good mantra for editing. Um, whether because whether you uh, and that's the thing about editing, and every situation is different, and every creative team you deal with is different, and every company you deal with is different. But as the editor, your job is to make it seem like you just sat there and uh, went out to three martini lunches and and you know and and um, you know and checked your uh, your email. I mean, you're not you know you're not supposed to let them see you sweat. So the the idea when you do things right, people won't be sure you've done anything at all, um, I think sums it up because, you know, let's face it, editing actually is really uh, difficult and challenging and requires a hundred different skill sets, but you don't want to see, you know, but, but I, think the reason, I think the reason people may think that, oh, what do I need an editing course for? I just show up and... Uh, you know, and then sign the vouchers and uh, put the team together. You know, there's a there's a million different things to know, uh, but we we generally you know uh, don't like to advertise it. <laughs> um, but now, I'm just the opposite, I'm advertising it. <laughs> um, so the, you know, and and editing. Like you know, I said you learned a lot about uh, life and and existence, and you kind of do. Editing is one of those kind of uh, all that encompasses a lot of different skill sets, and and um, you know, there's a lot of things I wish I knew when I started out uh, that I'm going to try to pass along. Although, you know, like with teaching anything, I there are some things like teaching or parenting, there are some things, no matter how clear you make the lessons or, or how many diagrams you draw, there are some things that people still need to learn just by getting hit over the head uh, yep. with whatever blunt object uh, is coming their way. But I, I, I hope through this course I can 
you know, minimize that and 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 uh, and leave people's uh, getting hit over the head to a minimum. But it will be, you know, it it, it, it we're going to keep it small. I'd, I'd say to no more than ten. There's there's still a few spots left. And if anybody has any questions, uh, you can find me on Facebook or Danny at DannyFingeroth.com. But that is coming up uh, on the 24th. It's the the first session. Very cool. So, Danny, thank you once again for your time today. Thank you. This is great. April 24th, by the way, just to be clear. There we go. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on again, guys. This How is, closer? Uh, I was going to say. You, you bring out the blabbermouth in me. <laughs> So. How how much how closer are we? My last question, and by that by we I mean you, closer to because you've got forty plus years doing this, the Danny Fingeroth autobiography. Well, that's interesting. Um, Don't say you hadn't thought about it, please. Oh, of course I thought about okay. it. Um, you know, um, there are two levels to that question. I mean, a of course I'd like to write that just if nothing else to have. You know, a record for my uh, for my kids and uh, whoever else. Uh, you know, while I'm uh, uh, while I'm whatever, I'm trying to think of some facetious thing. I, I mean, I guess I have to ask myself how many people would buy that Danny Fingeroth biography. You know, I mean, I, I I must. Can I get? Can I can I count on two sales from you guys? Absolutely. And yeah. then you have relatives, and the holidays are coming up, so. Uh, I, I think I think it might happen. Um, you know, uh, depends on a lot of things. Um, you know, uh, one of those things might be a uh, nice contract from a publisher. You know, it's, I, 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 you know, it's a funny. No one's ever asked me the question in quite that way. But I mean, what I, on the on a on an actual serious answer, um, I've been working uh, with an artist. Um, um, who I don't. Well, I mean, I work with an artist named Dan Chicade, who, um, uh, who some of you may know, he did a Spirit uh, maxi series um, with uh, Matt Wagner, and he does a lot of stuff uh, online. He's a terrific artist, and uh, he and I have been working on sort of uh, what I call true stories of the comics industry, which are you know, which are. From my point of view, an autobiographical. So, so I'd say there might be that might be a thing, you know, if he and I can figure out some way to not lose too much money doing it. You know? mm-hmm. um, that might be an autobiographical thing you thing you see coming out. Uh, and and uh, you know, I've got some other projects that are. I'm sure I've mentioned to you guys. I have a Bob Dylan project that I'm pitching around, and a Jack Ruby graphic novel. Uh, and a Jack Ruby, Jack Ruby, yes, the guy who killed Lee Harvey Oswald, mm. graphic novel and prose biography. Uh, so I would not, so those are obviously not autobiographical, but those are sort of more in the ballpark of the stand biography of like more or less real world things. So I'm getting closer to that, but um, yeah, if you, uh, if you guys are each good for like 30 or 40 copies, uh, for all your friends and relatives, then that would that would be a big, a big impetus to me to get to get moving on that autobiography. <laughs> I did I did pay a credit card bill recently, so let's see what we can do. Duly, okay, that's good. <laughs> du- duly was, noted. Okay. Then that was that might that that's one of the best and strangest questions I've ever gotten. But thank you. <laughs> and almost likewise for the response. Very nice. <laughs> well, thank you. I I. Uh, 
English is my native language, and I uh, have been writing for a while. So, um, you know, so so uh, the, those things all once in a while come together. All right, thank you, gentlemen. Thank you for and, this fun with Finger Roth episode. And <laughs> well, it was it was my pleasure, and uh, I hope to uh, see you guys somewhere in real life, and maybe I'll see some of you folks out there in listener land at the uh, editing workshop on Comicsplex. For the Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Danny Fingeroth. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior!